from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. I'm Danny Wisentowski. On November 9th, a man in a crisp blue suit walked out the front gate of the Algoa Correctional Center in Jefferson City. His name, Bobby Bostick. And as he walked toward a cheering crowd of family members and reporters, the first person to approach him and embrace him was Evelyn Baker. Baker and Bostick have a history. In 1997, the two had faced each other in a St. Louis courtroom. And after a jury delivered a guilty verdict, it was Judge Evelyn Baker who sentenced Bobby Bostick to 241 years in prison. She bluntly told him that he would die there. He was 18 years old. But time changes things, and against all odds, Bobby is a free man today. And to talk about his journey through decades of prison to the unlikely bond with a now retired judge who once saw him as beyond redemption, we welcome to the studio Bobby Bostick. Bobby, thank you for being here. Oh, I appreciate the opportunity. Bobby, you spent more than 20 years serving a 241-year sentence. That was your total prison term. How did you maintain hope during that time that you'd be free someday? I always maintain hope because the faith that my family had in me and me seeing that it was more to life than prison. I never believed I was going to die in prison. That's what kept me going because the hope that I always had from day one, even when I was sentenced, I had hope, um, but when things was looking bad, faith, it was God, basically. Uh, my faith in God kept me through, too, and during those darker times when I wasn't so spiritual, it was just me wanting the second opportunity of life, and I just kept holding on to that no matter how long it took. The fact that you're here at all is, is just remarkable because these developments that led to your freedom, they're fairly recent. You know, in just in, in 2021, there was a new state law that was passed, and that was the law that said that juveniles who were sentenced for a crime other than murder, if they served 15 years in prison, they would qualify for parole. Your case actually inspired that law, but for a long time, it, it didn't seem that the law or attempts to get you out, that, that they would work. Um, wh when did this hope, when did it become real for you? It was real even then, but everything that I tried to do got denied everything. I mean, up till then, until that, until that law passed, and that was something that caught us by surprise because we didn't think that that was going to pass. So basically, on the legal front, in that landscape, it was it was really it was a failure as far as me trying to get out. Every door was shut in my face. Um, but in the spiritual world, they say as as one door closed, God opened the window. That whole thing was a miracle, basically. Uh, so I kept holding on against all odds. But in the, there were some dark days when they denied something that's blatantly in front of their face, like uh, Graham versus Slaughter said that a juvenile who committed non-homicide can't be uh, have a life sentence. And in Missouri, they said, okay, well, you got 241 years. That's not life. It's a technical play on words, but everybody know that it's life. And then when the judge herself said you would die in prison, that is life, right? And and Bobby, the the point you're making is is just you know it, it is mind blowing because you know this attempt in Missouri, this law that said you know we shouldn't be putting teenagers or people who were children when they committed these crimes 
in prison for a life sentence. And then they saw your case where you were 16 when you went into prison, but you had a 241-year sentence. That was a number of charges that were added consecutively. And so they thought, well, technically, that's not a life sentence. That's only 241 years. That that must be so frustrating to, to hear in a position where you were. Um, yeah. How did you get through that? Oh, I was beyond frustrating because when the United States Supreme Court make a law, it's national. And when they said that um, you can't have life for a non-homicide, I knew I was getting out. I mean, I was excited. I thought I was getting out. But then they denied everything that was filed. And then in 2012, a case called Miller versus Alabama came out of the United States Supreme Court. And they said that if you committed a first-degree murder, you can't have life without. Okay, and then it took six more long years of, of determining whether the case was retroactive and whether it would affect guys like me with consecutive sentences. When they when they did decide in 2016 that Miller versus Alabama was retroactive, Missouri in 17 said that don't apply to guys like me. So when they say that, the door is shut. Every hope that we had was slammed in our face mm-hmm. again because uh, the court held those motions for four years. So we waited four long years, and the longer it took, the longer they take the answer, it gives you hope. Like, okay, they just taking long, but we finna get out. And and you know, as I mentioned. You know, it took it took a, a law that wasn't passed until 2021 just just to give you a parole hearing. It wasn't yeah. it wasn't you know an order that released you saying you know this guy you know should have never had 241 years on his sentence. But in that parole hearing, Judge Evelyn Baker was your advocate, and and I mentioned her earlier in our introduction. But tell us a bit about how you found out that the judge who looked at you in that courtroom and said, "I know I'm sentencing you to death." And, and I know, you know, that you know that as well, and you deserve this. The decades later, she was there in that parole hearing advocating for your release. What, what was that like? It was, a, it was a blessing. It was a miracle. It was a surreal moment because what happened with that is she came back in, like, 2018. She called my lawyers and said, um, I want to be on the team to help them. And they reached out to her, and it was a mutual thing to where she became an advocate and said, um, the Bobby Bosick that she see now is not the same child she sent us 20-some years ago. She said the man that he is now is different, and that man deserves a second chance. Furthermore, she said she didn't know about uh, juvenile brain development back in the 90s when they sentenced me because it wasn't they didn't trip off the neuroscience about juveniles back then. And you know that that is what Judge Baker. That's kind of what she said in an interview. She spoke with CBS News correspondent Aaron Moriarty, and and this is what she said about how openly grateful she is that she got a chance to see you free. The Bobby Bostick I put in prison. It's not the Bobby Bostick who got out. Bobby did what many people can't do. He created himself. He took the good, the bad, and the ugly. And he turned into something that's quite beautiful. That was retired Judge Evelyn Baker speaking with CBS News correspondent Aaron Moriarty earlier this month, shortly after the release of Bobby Bostick, who is in our studio right now. Bobby, react a bit to what we just heard from retired Judge Evelyn Baker. She said that you created yourself in prison, and and that was a different kind of person that she had known as the 16-year-old who had committed a robbery. What do you hear her saying there? Uh, she just uh, summing up the journey, the journey of the new me, basically uh, coming from that troubled child to the adult man I am. I had to recreate myself in a, in a negative prison environment. I had to 
wrap myself in a safe cocoon and really change. Um, I did that by reading books, uh, graduating from college, writing books. As she um, visited me in 2018-19, the man she met is not the child she sentenced. And when she heard me and heard my work, she's like, okay, let me help you get out because you don't deserve to die in prison. Mm-hmm. You know, I was looking back at the transcript of some of that, that sentencing in 1997, and some of the things she tells you, you, you could tell that she, for lack of a better word, sounded fed up with, mm-hmm. with you, with your case. And she said things like, you're, you're going to die with your choice. Nobody in this room is going to be alive in the year 2201. That's 2201. That's the year that you would have had, have to be to, to finish that 241-year sentence. She said, I feel nothing for you. I feel the same thing for you that you apparently felt for those victims and you feel for your family. These are devastating things for anyone to say. 27 years later, she's hugging you as you step out of prison. Tell us, what's going through your head in in that moment as as you meet her? Uh, first of all, it was a surreal moment when you walk out and the sun shines. You're free now. No handcuffs, no nothing, right? And that moment, for me, I knew it was God. Some people may not go into the spiritual, but for me, uh, for any lack of words, all I can say is that was God because to be getting out of prison is a miracle within itself. But this this very lady who told you that you would die in prison, this is the first person hugging you because it's like making something right that was wrong, right? Um, but for, Evelyn Baker, you know, this this judge who sentenced you, do you have forgiveness for her for for you know knowingly sending a teenage boy to to die in prison and and knowing that that would be the end for you? Oh yeah, I forgave her a long time ago because my motivation in prison was to get out. My vision was one day I would see her in the store or something, and I would be in my suit business, my briefcase, and I would be a very successful man. And all I can do is walk over to her and say, "How you doing?" And it's no hard feelings towards her because. On a, on a divine intervention level, I think that um, God allows certain things to happen for people to be um, taught lessons. I had to be taught a lesson the hard way, and she, she was the vehicle that, that um, God used to teach me that harsh lesson. And it sounded like you had a, a chance to, to teach her a lesson in, in a good way, and she described meeting you, I, I believe, in prison uh, in person, and she described how you— um, told her what it was like to be a teenager who's sent to prison to an adult prison, and it sounded like maybe she didn't fully know what this would be like, what she was actually committing a person to. Do judges not really understand what what they're sending these young people off to when they send them to prison at a young age like you? Um, no, judges can never understand what goes on inside prison because they never experienced it. But when you throw a teenager away and you throw them with these wolves, I mean, you killing any desire or hope that this person can have. As a teenager, uh, when you sentence them to die in prison, they, it's, it's a hopeless situation. It's like, what what possibly, why would I hold on to life when you just told me there's nothing to live for? So if a teenager ain't strong, well, he most teenagers don't have a life experience to be able to see the future. They can't even see two years into the future, less known 20 years down the line when they would get a second opportunity like I did. So I was lost when I was sent to prison. I was lost, hurt, wounded, and in that type of environment, you act out. But when you act out as a child, you you are an adult uh, institution. So by you acting out, it can backfire on you by the administration and other inmates that don't like hard-headed kids. Mm -hmm. So you can suffer in a lot of ways when you first go to prison. Was there a turning point for you in your prison journey where you had to 
you know, make a plan for yourself, for your own future? Um, it was basically waking up being just tired of prison. Just I hated prison. I never became a part of prison. I was in prison, but I wasn't of prison. Everything about prison I, I despised. Nevertheless, I was there every day, so I had to blend in with the population. I was, I'm, I'm a number just like everybody else. So, But at the same time, I always knew I wanted more than prison. So the turning point came for me. It was a spiritual turning, turning point. Um, it, it was because I had no power. I had nothing to hold on to. It was no answer. The courts denied this. The courts denied that. I had no way of getting out of prison. So I had to look to some power for me, and that was God, basically. And uh, losing my mother at the same time that uh, I became spiritual, I lost my mother. And it was like, man, this is, this is, it felt hopeless, right? I was stuck in prison for life, and that's what they meant. But I never saw that. I saw goals. I saw positivity. I saw opportunities in the world, and one day I'm going to get out there to explore. We need to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll continue our talk with Bobby Bostick, who was recently paroled from a 241-year prison sentence that he began serving as a teenager in 1997. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. We're talking with Bobby Bostick, who was sentenced to a 241-year prison term as a teenager for a crime he committed in 1995 for his role in an armed robbery. Earlier this month, Bobby walked out of prison on parole, and he's with us now, talking about his journey and what comes next. Bobby, before the break, uh, we talked about the judge who sentenced you, Evelyn Baker, and about her having this change of heart from the way that she treated you in a courtroom during your trial uh, in 1997. Now, tell us a bit about that Bobby Bostick, that version of you at the age 16. What do you want people to know about what was going on in your life at that point and, and what brought you to the crime that eventually led you to prison? Um, like many other troubled youth, uh, I was lost in the streets. Uh, I had no direction. I felt like um, life was, I ain't going to say it was meaningless, but it was full of pain, basically. Uh, when you're in the streets, you losing friends, they dying, uh, everybody, you know, you know, for me, my mother was smoking drugs, smoking crack cocaine. Uh, the streets that we lived in was trouble, friends dying, uh, we lived in extreme poverty. So that, that, that lost 16-year-old, he felt in his heart that he'd be dead at 18. He he was just a walking, just walking lost. He was a walking zombie with no hope. He felt that uh, he was living, but he wasn't really living because he wasn't living for nothing. And, and this crime you were involved in, this was, you know, people who were handing out, uh, you know, Christmas gifts and, and resources for the holidays. Um, you and an 18-year-old at the time, you know, targeted them in a number of armed robberies. This, you know, reading back the details of this crime, this this did hurt people and this did involve you. What, what would you want people to know about how you, you look back at that and, and perhaps look back at what you did uh, to those people? 
Well, I look back on that extreme regret, but in, um, in prison, I, I found out that regret in itself is not a redeeming emotion. So I took that regret and took that energy to change my life and also to try to help other people because I took so much, not only from those people, but in the communities where I sold drugs at. That was somebody's mother I was selling drugs to. So by me selling drugs, I was taking the kids' money that they needed for school. I realized the impact of that when I was in prison, away from all that, it took for me to sit in the cell and see the devastating effects that I had by pushing drugs, by doing the crimes that I was doing. Um, as far as the day I was arrested, I was on the drug set then selling drugs, and these people, it was a known drug set, so people don't come over here, they're not from over here. And those people came, we never knew what they was doing that day. We just saw, uh, it was a, a crime of opportunity. We just saw some people that weren't from over there, and we just decided to target them. And it was a terrible crime, it was a tragedy to take from people that was given to somebody else. And so from, from back then, when I realized the significance of what I did, because um, when I was locked up at 16, the floor I was on, it was 12 or 13 cells. Everybody down there had a murder except me, so the criminals would be like, man, you was a juvenile, you didn't kill nobody, um, you'll be out in five, 10 years, it's no big deal. We tried to belittle my crime because nobody got killed. It was no sexual, no no rape or nothing involved. So for me, it was, um, in my mind, I always, not me, but the people I was around, per se, was like, man, it's no big deal. We don't understand how they gave you that much time until in prison I took restorative justice classes, uh, victim impact classes, impact of crime on victims, and then we go into detail of what uh, victims go through. And then I took college courses on, on victimology. In those courses, I understand the trauma that the victim go to, no matter, it can be a theft crime. It, it ain't got to be a crime of violence, but being that my crime was a crime of violence, I realized what those people went through. They civilians, they not from the world I live in. So it traumatized those people for years to come, and I realized the impact of what my violence did to those people. And then it was then and there that I knew I had to find a way to give back because I couldn't change what I did. Yeah. And Bobby, you mentioned, you know, taking these restorative justice classes and you took a lot of, of classes and, and college courses in prison. And what stood out to me is that a lot of folks who take these classes, you know, maybe it's a condition for their parole, but you're taking these classes and there is none of that incentive. There is none, you know, get this degree and you'll shave, you know, a couple years off your sentence or it'll look good on your parole hearing. You didn't have parole hearings for decades. Um, what drove you to that self-improvement and, and to take these classes, even though, unlike many of the inmates, I'm assuming, who were next to you, you weren't getting something out of it? Oh, yeah, I was I was never getting out of prison. And uh, I took every class the prison had offered because there was so much negativity in prison. The only positive spaces you had was these classes, right? This the only place where people explored positivity in prison because there was so much negativity. So I was never going up for parole. I never took the classes to impress a parole board because I never had a parole hearing. I was never getting out. So I took the classes on my own free will because I wanted something better than, with my life. I, anything positive in prison, that's what I gravitated towards to. The classes was always restorative justice classes in particular. The other hundreds of classes I took, there was a, it was a positive space in prison. And I always went to the positive places. Like if you're on the street, you want to escape, you go to the library. So for me to escape, I went to classes all day. Uh, whatever was positive, that's how I spent my time. That's how I um, broke my schedule now. This class here, that class available here. 
So day for day I took classes. It wouldn't impress nobody because I was never getting out. For me, it was a sanctuary. The library and those classes, it was a sanctuary away from the prison madness. Bobby, one of the other things in addition to the classes you've just described is you did a lot of writing. And you wrote multiple books and you wrote a lot of poetry. And in August, your poetry was featured at the Word Up Open Mic here in St. Louis. And while you weren't there, of course, Ronnie Amin performed your work for that open mic. Let's listen back to that performance of your work. The poem is called, When You Pass Away, What Will You Leave Here? When you pass away, what will you leave here? What words of yours? Will the people come to revere? The short life is only a brief segment. It is being in the womb of the universe before the hereafter was pregnant. We should all contribute something to this world before we go. Let our descendants learn from our lessons by flipping through our portfolios. Yeah, at one time, we could have been hell raisers. But hopefully, by the time we depart, we would turn into trailblazers. Understanding that the world is just not some big playground, so look around, there is serious work to be found. What will be the fulfillment of your life? Weigh the good and bad and see what's most rife. A lot of people avoid this topic. To them, death is catastrophic. Either way, we will face death. What's important is the legacy of our mental and spiritual wealth. We must pass on our wisdom to the next generation. Our contribution to the world will be our demonstration. We all started off as impressionable boys and girls. When we die as adults, what will be our impression upon the world? Bobby Bostic. That was Ronnie Amin reading from the poetry of Bobby Bostick in August. And we are now talking here with Bobby Bostick, who was recently paroled from a 241-year prison sentence that he began serving as a teenager in 1997. Bobby, this, this poem that we just heard of yours being read, it talks about legacy. It talks about wondering what will you leave here when you're gone. Tell us about that poem and, and where your head was at the time when you wrote it. Um, a lot of my poetry in the beginning of my um, period, my prison period, I was in solitary confinement a lot because I stayed in trouble. And when I was in solitary confinement, all I could do was look within to try to find answers that I couldn't find without. So looking inside of myself, I discovered poetry, and I started writing poems every day, just expressing those type of thoughts like, what will your legacy be? Um, me looking at those four walls, I knew that wasn't it. So I was determined to do something with my life. And those poems come from a deep point of view. Like, I want to explain to everybody else, what do you want your legacy to be? Um, this is what I'm going to do with my life, but we all in this world together. So what are you going to do to find your life fulfillment or your life goals? Um, so I write poems to try to help people look for their life purpose because this is what I'm feeling within, and I want to um, inspire them to look within too. Bobby, in another one of your books, you wrote an, a series of essays, and then one of those is called The Redeeming Value of Art in Prison, and I, I'd love if you could read us a bit of that. Reading from my book called Life Goes On Inside of Prison, an essay that I wrote in that book is called The Redeeming Value of Art Inside of Prison. A prisoner knows that he can never take back his crime. He cannot undo his past. But this is where the term redeem comes into play. By creating art that helps to heal other people, the 
the prisoner is attempting to atone for his wrong. He is converting the mess into something of value. He is doing his best to make his life better by performing good art. Brian Stevenson once said that people are not the worst thing that they have ever done. This applies to prisoners also. Just look at their art. Before you write them off, let their art speak to you. What is the message? Feel it. Prisoners, prison artists know that they have harmed society. They know that many people have been hurt by their crimes, including themselves. Therefore, they occupy their time in prison making meaningful art. In the art, they express remorse, warn others not to repeat their mistakes, and still see hope in a troubled world. Locked away from the, pr- from the world with all its problems, the prison artists still see so much beauty in the world. That was Bobby Bostick reading from his essay, The Redeeming Value of Art in Prison. Um, Bobby, thank you for sharing that with us. And you wrote about the way that, that prisoners try to convert the mess of their lives in, into some beauty in, in prison. Was that what it felt like for you? Oh, that's, that's, that's what I did, and that been his journey, because um, my life was a mess. The crime that I committed was a mess. But um, through that mess, I was able to write such beautiful words, such beautiful poems, and then to come out with a plan to form a nonprofit, which I did while I was in prison. These are dreams I had from the prison cell, so I got out and made it happen. Again, we're talking with Bobby Bostick, who was recently paroled from a 241-year prison sentence that he began serving as a teenager in 1997, and Bobby was just you know, released earlier this month. And Bobby, you just referenced this nonprofit, this this organization that you you dreamed up uh, from inside your prison cell, and which has also become something real. And I actually got a chance to see some of the work your nonprofit is doing. And I stopped by a elementary school in St. Louis on Saturday, and I got to meet you and your sister, Morquise, as she was handing out food and clothing. And Morquise talked to me about how much it meant for her to be doing this work and have you there with her. It means a lot to get. I've been doing this by myself a whole year without him, and now that he's out, we can promote him more, and more people will come out to see him, so it, it feels really good to be out here with him. Bobby and I, I always, for me not to have anything, and for us growing up not to have anything, I used to go to the schools and see the kids that didn't have, and I used to volunteer to braid their hair or volunteer to give clothes back. So Bobby, from his jail cell, was like, let's do an organization called Dear Mama. So he wrote up everything, and I just took it from there, and we been giving back ever since. Bobby, we just heard from your sister, Marquise, talking about the origin of this nonprofit that, that you dreamed up uh, called Dear Mama. D- tell us a bit about that and, and what it was like to be part of that food and, and clothing giveaway on Saturday. It was the best feeling in the world to be able to give back to those kids because growing up, I grew up in extreme poverty. And uh, I was one of those kids that got picked on in school and bullied because I, I had dirty shoes or dirty clothes. Um, no food, didn't have enough food to eat, didn't even have a coat in the wintertime. So I know what poverty is and what those kids suffer from. And I knew I was getting out November 9th. So um, by November 19th, I wanted to have a food and clothing giveaway. So I coordinated that from prison. And uh, when I got out, I spent my own money, money that I saved in prison to buy all the food and some of the shoes and clothes that, that we gave away that day because Money is nothing to sacrifice when I took so much. So the the greatest feeling in the world was to look in that crowd and see those kids going through them boxes, picking out new shoes and all that. Like, this started from a jail cell, man. You you took from other people 
Now you can give back to the same kids from these neighborhoods. Money is nothing to help other people. That's what you're here for. You're here to serve. So that was the reason to create the nonprofit. I wanted to serve other people. Bobby, before we say goodbye, what, what does the future hold for you? Well, as we speak right now, I still my sentence is still 241 years. Um, even though I'm on the street, I'm still serving the sentence. The sentence never went nowhere. So as we speak, I still got a death sentence. I still got 241 years. I'm not totally free from the Department of Corrections. So this, I'm still walking around where if I make a mistake that somebody else made, it can be a misdemeanor for them. But for me, it can send me back to prison to serve out the rest of a 241-year sentence. So uh, my focus is to fight that sentence and meanwhile serve the community, serve uh, the communities at large, help people with the knowledge that I done got, help kids find their way, and help adults realize it's never too late for their goals because it was never too late for me to get out of prison. So I'm going to use my story for inspiration and live life to the fullest because life is short and for me, life is going to be short. I got 30, 40 more years, but I'm going to live them to the fullest if I live that long to make the best out of life and not take things for granted because when I got out of prison after 27 years, it's the everyday things that other people take for granted that meant everything to me. So don't ignore the simple things of riding in the car, riding a bike, going outside, taking a shower when you want to, drinking a cup of coffee when you want to, uh, going to sleep when you want to. So for me, I'm just going to enjoy life every day and live and serve and give back. Bobby Bostick was released on parole on November 9th after serving 27 years of his 241-year prison sentence for a robbery he committed in St. Louis at age 16. Bobby was released with the support of the judge who sentenced him all those years ago, and he has big plans for his life, his art, and giving back. Bobby, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate the opportunity to share my story here today. Coming up, baking tips from the longtime pastry chef at Tony's. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. This episode was produced by Danny Wisentowski. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.